this year should be a merit for the health and success of the family families of Regina Bas Yosef Ruvain and Yeshaya ben Yisrael, uh, Benjamin Wolf ben Tzvihersh, and Baruch ben Benjamin Wolf. From this year. Um, well, you know, I, I, I wanted to continue, but tonight and actually tomorrow is the Asar B'tavis. And Asar B'tavis really, in certain ways, based on a certain halacha, seems to be, in many ways, the most severe of all. Uh, there's an Avodrom that says, he's a early Pesach, that if Asar B'teves fell, falls on Shabbos, you would have to fast on Shabbos. Now we know any fast day that falls on Shabbos is moved. It's called a Nitche, it's moved to Sunday. But he brings down and he says that Asar B'teves is so severe that even if it fell on Shabbos, where obviously you're not supposed to fast, you would have to fast. You know, and we can ask ourselves, why is that? Now, we know Asar B'tavis in general, what happened. Uh, I mean, that's the Asar B'tavis really <clears throat> is when the beginning of the destruction of the temple, Beis Hamikdash, happened. That's what Asar B'tavis is. Uh, if I recall correctly, the wall of Jerusalem was surrounded <clears throat> and that be, by the enemy, and that became the initial uh, attempt by the Goyim to destroy the Beis HaMikdosh. So that's historically what happened. Then, of course, it took time, uh, and then finally, of course, on Tisha B'Av, it was destroyed, and so on. So the question is, why would something like a Sorbetavis, why would that be so severe that if it happened on Shabbos, you'd still have to fast? I mean, that's unheard of in any other uh, Tainus fast day, which is rabbinical. I mean, we know, that, of course, that if it happened on Shabbos, if you have Kippur, happened on Shabbos, well, of course we know you have to fast. But that's because Yom Kippur is according to the Torah. But all the rabbinical fast days, which there are basically four, right? You don't have to fast if it comes out on Shabbos. Even uh, Tisha B'av, if it calls out, like I said, if it falls out on Shabbos, you do not have to fast, right? You would, you would move it to Sunday. So, like I said, the question is, why is Asar B'tavis so much more severe than Tisha B'av? Now, like I said, historically we know that that's when the beginning of the campaign to destroy the temple started, you see. Now, there is something that we do know, which I had mentioned, and that is that the mazel of Esau, or Edoim, is several times a year. In other words, that's when he has a special power, Esau, to prosecute the Jewish people if they sin. So the mazel of Esau is very strong in Teves and half of Shvat until Tub Shvat. It's also very strong in Tammuz and the next month or half of the month, which is uh, Ov. So, so on Tub Shvat, 
the muzzle of Esav ends, and that begins the muzzle of Yosef, right, on Tubishvat, and on uh, Tammuz and half of Av, the muzzle of Esav again is very strong, and it ends on Hamisha Osbiyov, which is a very good day for the Jewish people. So that makes sense. That is the destruction of the Beis Amigdash occurs, or the beginning of the destruction occurs when it occurs in Teves. So that's why, and obviously the Beis Amigdash, right, is the main focus of Judaism. You see, that's where the Shrina, the Divine Presence, resides. So clearly then, there would be major Kitrugim, which is, of course, uh, prosecutions against the Jewish people in that month. So we understand the timing of this, of the concept of Asura Bateves, you see. So that's in terms of when, but the question is, why is it so severe? What is interesting is that when you look at historically, that is the beginning of what? Of the campaign to destroy the Beis Amigdash, you see. And that's, uh, of course, where, uh, that was because of the sins of the Jews. But the meaning of the day really is something unique. We can ask, when was the Gezerah, when was the decree by God in the heavenly tribunal that the Beis Amigdash would be destroyed? Well, what we realize is that that decree happened on Asar Beteves because that was the beginning of the campaign. Therefore, that was the beginning of the decree. So it comes out that the real part of the Beis Hamikdash being destroyed, right, the most uh, significant time is not only when it was destroyed, is when the Gezera, the decree that it has to be destroyed, that's when it was, when it was issued. And therefore, the, dec- the day of the decree is Asura B'teves, you see. And therefore, that day is the most significant of all. Because when it's destroyed, it's just a matter of formality. You know, whenever, you know, the Rabbanisham, uh, you know, wants it to be destroyed. But the real destruction of the Beis Amigdash, right, is not so much when it was destroyed, but when was the decree that it has to be destroyed issued? That's the worst day of all, you see. And um, it was destroyed, you know, Chazal tell us, and so on. Because the Jews, there are different ideas. But what, the, the Jews sinned, whatever they sinned, they violated apparently the uh, three sins for which one should give up one's life. And that is avoid Zorah, idol worship. Kiri Arayas, incest, adultery. Right? And uh, Ritzicha, and murder. Those are the three sins for which one must give up his life if he is asked to commit. So the Jewish people violated those three sins. That's what the Gemara says. And therefore, it was decreed that the Beis Hamikdash should be destroyed. You see, so therefore we now understand <clears throat> that when the decree is what's called promulgated 
or Ishut is the real worst day of all. Not necessarily where the decree is fulfilled, but when the decree in heaven happens. And that's what happened at Sarbatavis. <clears throat> now what's also interesting is that there is a Chazal that says that the decree to build the Besamikdash, right, the decree to build the third base of Midrash will also be issued on a Sarbatevis. Right? Because that was the day that it was issued to be destroyed. So we can imagine that in heaven, right now, or tomorrow, whatever, that they are now talking about, well, do we want the third base of Midrash to be built? And therefore the whole deliberations of the court is happening now or tomorrow, whatever. So we certainly have to hope that the decree will be that the Beis Amigdash has to be rebuilt. And when it will be rebuilt is merely a formality. The key is to get heaven to issue the decree that the Beis Amigdash has to be built generally in the year that the decree is issued. So what we have to hope is that the decree to build the third base of English is going to happen on a Sarbatavis. You see? And that's what we're hoping. Because the decree to rebuild will happen on the same, same day as the, the decree to destroy. So that's it. So let's hope that today or tomorrow, tonight now is Asura Batavis, or tomorrow, that the heavenly tribunal or court will decide that the Jews have had enough of the Golas, right, the exile, right, and the Tikkun process is almost complete in terms of the exile and the suffering, and therefore the Rabbanishim will decree that he wants the third base of Migdish to be rebuilt. So let's hope that we tomorrow we will actually witness that decree, maybe something significant will happen. Which is interesting and so on, you know. Um, so these are the concepts of Asurabatavis, you see. Which would mean that Teves, which is the month of Edoim, or Esav, is going to be reversed. Because that's what it means. If the Beis Hamikdash is decreed to be rebuilt in the month of Esav, well, that's the overturning of the power of Esav to rule. And we do see good signs. In Eretz Yisrael, we saw the beginning of a new government without any participation of the left, the radical left, the extremists, the progressives, the Erevrav. They are not in the government at all. So that really, I think it was sworn in in the month of Teves, which is last week, after Hanukkah. So that is a very good sign, you see. Um, so that's number one. And number two, even in America, which is Edoy Moesov, Right, the, the Congress or the House of Representatives will take uh, control, the Republicans, tomorrow on January 3rd, which is Asorba Teves.
you see. And hopefully that will mean that this will be the beginning of the end of the power of the era of Rav of America, Esav, which is the evil of Esav, the Rashab Esav, that they will begin to lose power. So it is interesting that on Asura B'Tavis is when the Congress begins, uh, you know, after the elections. I find that to be very interesting. Uh, and so on. So therefore, let's hope that uh, we will see the rebuilding of the temple, the Beis HaMikdash, this year. You see, and that will end, effectively end the Golas. So tomorrow, really, in that sense, is really a very good day. You see, great, okay. <clears throat> there is a very interesting remez. Remez means an illusion, which I would like to share. At the end of Ayishlach, right, we are now in the story of Yosef, and in, in Egypt, the whole story of Yosef, which is a very difficult story to understand, which I'd like to talk a little about how it fits into the whole story, really, of Yaakov and Esau. What's the secret, the mystery, the hidden story of what's going on with Yaakov and Esau? <clears throat> but at the end of Parshas Vayishlach, it says there, these are the kings, that reigned in the land of Edom, Esau. When did they reign? So the Torah continues and says, Before there reigned a king in Israel. Right? So in other words, the Torah is telling us, it's now going to list, and it lists eight of them, eight kings. At the end of Pasuk Yishlach, these are the kings that emerge from Edom, Esau, right, in Haseir, before there reigned a Jewish king, a king in Israel. Now, it's interesting because it says these are the kings, plural, whereas by Israel it says before there reigned a king, one, in Israel. <clears throat> so what the Torah is intimating, right, that in the end of time, before there reigned a king, who is the king? Because it says, right, Ela told us Yaakov Yosef. In other words, before Yosef, or the Mashiach ben Yosef, will rule, right? Then the worst part of Esau, there will be eight kings. Now what is about, what is interesting about that, is that according to the Kabbalah, seven of these kings are totally evil. Bad people. Very bad people. They're the classic, you know, uh, for, uh, for, uh, models of, of Esau himself. And they were bad. But the Zohar says, and that represents, by the way, seven different levels of evil. It's called the uh, Shiva, Shiva Sakalim, the broken vessels. But I'm getting into that. And then the last king, his name was Hadar Hamelach. Hadar, his name was Hadar. And Hamelach, king, King Hadar. He was the eighth king. And the Zohar says, right, that by all the previous seven kings of Edom mentioned in Torah, 
It says by each one of them, Vayomos. He reigned for whatever, and then he died. But by the eighth king, it doesn't say that he died. It doesn't say that. It says there reigned the eighth king, which was Hadar HaMelech, King Hadar. But it doesn't say Vayomos, and he died. Also, what's interesting is it mentions the wife of this person, Mehitavel. You see, and it doesn't do that by any of the other seven kings. So, can we see a significance, right, of what the Torah is saying? Some secret. But what it seems to be connected to, it seems to be saying that before there reigns a, a king in Israel, and that's the next parsha of Yosef, which is Mashiach ben Yosef, there will reign eight kings in Edom. And the last king, like I said, doesn't say Vayomus, right? And that is because the eighth king will reverse the evil of the seven. That, that, that's why it doesn't say Vayomus, and he died. Almost as if the eighth king lives on, you see? Because Hadar Mahader in Hebrew means to reverse. Because Hadar HaMelech, King Hadar, reverses the evil of the seven. So the first seven are evil, and the last one, Hadar Melech, right, is, is the eighth king, and he reverses the evil of the seven. You see. <clears throat> so that's what the Zohar says. You see. And what is interesting is I, when, that, when the Soviet Union collapsed on December 25th, I think 1990, if I remember correctly, or was it 91, whatever. I was wondering, what is the significance of this, that seven kings of Edom, right? They reign and they're evil. But the eighth king, Hadar HaMelech, reverses the evil of the seven. I was thinking that to myself. I mean, Kabbalistically, we know what the Zohar says, and so on that there are seven kings of Edom that are evil, and the eighth king is not, and that alludes to a Kabbalistic phenomenon called the Shvira Sakalim, the breaking of the vessels. In any case, so I was wondering, what could be the significance of that? And then, what, what's interesting is the Rav I was on the subway then, and the Rav had the New York Times... Uh, and somebody had read the New York Times and left it on the bench. So, you know, I, I was on the train. So what I did is I picked up the paper just to look at it, the New York Times of that day. So it would be interesting to see what some of the news is. And one of the main news, well, of course, was that the previous day, Gorbachev resigned. Right? That was December 25th, 1990, I think. He resigned, you see, and that was the previous day. So, therefore, what happened was is the New York Times went through all the different, I think they call them secretaries, whatever. They're really prime ministers. They're the heads of Russia, of the entire communist regime of Russia. And lo and behold, it was astounding. The first, let's call him secretary or prime minister of Russia, Remember, they're all communists. Was a guy called Lenin. We all heard of Lenin. 
So he was the first, let's call him prime minister of Russia, the head of Russia, president, whatever. Ah, the second one was Stalin. So that's number two. Very bad people. The third one, 1953, I think it was, after Stalin died, was a guy called Malenkov. So that is number three. Then the fourth one became famous. Uh, his name is Khrushchev. I don't know if you remember Khrushchev, but he was, uh, he was uh, quite loud and very dramatic and so on. But in any case, um, he was the fourth prime minister of Russia. And they were all very bad people, Khrushchev. Now the fifth one, if I remember correctly, was Brezhnev. Bad person. All of them. Right? So that's the fifth. The sixth one, right, was, I think it was uh, either Andropov or Chinenko. Which one I don't remember. But let's assume it was Chinenko. He was the sixth. The seventh one was a guy, Andropov. Right? So there you are. Seven prime ministers of Russia that are incredibly evil. I mean, we all know that. But who's the eighth? Right? And that eighth would correspond to the eighth king of Edom. His name is Gorbachev, who, by the way, just recently died. Gorbachev was the eighth prime minister from Lenin, which is when the Bolsheviks, which when communism took over in 1918 or 17, whenever it was. Right? So it comes out that Gorbachev is the eighth president or whatever of Russia. What did Gorbachev do? He reversed the evil of Russia. Now that was incredible. If you remember, they issued 1987 or 86 the concept of glasnost and perestroika, where all of a sudden Gorbachev reversed the decrees and he said, that Russia can become a much greater open society. And that led, led in the beginning of freedom and liberty to the Russian people. Now, he was the eighth uh, president of Russia, right? And he, therefore, he corresponds, therefore, if, if Russia, and I'll uh, point out why, if he corresponds to Hader Amelech, who was the eighth king, but the Zohar says that Hadar HaMelech reversed the evil of the seven. So isn't that incredible? You see? So this is what uh, we see. A tremendous remez. Now, <clears throat> was I right? Does Gorbachev correspond to Hadar HaMelech? You see? As the person who reverses the evil, Right? of the uh, seven kings before him. And therefore, what that means is shortly thereafter, there has to be the king in Israel, which is Mashiach ben Yosef. You see, that would be very, very interesting. You see. So, what I did is I asked somebody who was very good in gematria, numerical values of different words. So he's very good at it. So I asked him, is there an allusion in Gematria of this Hadar HaMelech to Gorbachev? 
right? That would be incredible, wouldn't it? Right? That's, that's what's called bingo. Uh, so he comes back to me, and he says, by the way, the numerical value, right, of Gorbachev, right, I think it's 303, how you spell it in Hebrew. The numerical value of Hadar HaMelech, right, is 304. Now, in Gamata, you're allowed to add an extra one for the word itself. So besides the fact that each letter has a value, right, uh, the word itself counts as one that can be added to the Gematria. So it comes out, I think, that the Gematria is 303, add one, uh, a one to the, it comes out to 304. But 304 is the Gematria of Hadar Melech. Bingo! That means the name of Gorbachev is alluded to in this individual in the Torah that's written 3,300 years ago, right, of Hadar Melech. Uh, now that's astounding. Absolutely astounding. Now why would Russia be, or the concept of communism, of the Soviet Union, why would that be in the Torah? Because if you recall, I said that Edom, or Esav, had three characteristics, right? The first characteristic was what? Is that he's a tremendous uh, deceiver, imposter, Meramabepe, deceiver. Esav was also a tremendous Baltaiva. It's another very famous characteristic. And the third characteristic of Esav, right, is that he's also a tremendous Balgaiva. Says, Vayives Esav is and Esav despised the birthright, you see, which is the whole issue of spirituality in a family. So he despised it, you see. Uh, so therefore, Esav or Edom had three characteristics. Therefore, Esav we know became Edom, the Edomites. Edom became Rome, that's what the Gemara says, Edom Zuroimi. Edom is Rome, right? The Torah says Esav is Edom. The Gemara says Edom is Rome, right? Because Rome, of course, is, uh, is Esav, Italy, and so on. And then we know that Esav also, that Rome became Western civilization. Well, I should say Christianity. Christianity took over the heritage of Esav, you see. And then we know that today Western civilization is the bearer of Christianity. Now, therefore... Uh, Esav, which has three characteristics, is divided in three sections of Western civilization. The worst part of Esav, or the worst part of Western civilization, is the Soviet Union under communism. Unbelievable Balegaiva, arrogant, incredible, atheist, and so on. So therefore, the Soviet Union, Russia, is the worst part of Edom, Right? And originally they were Christians, the Russian Orthodox Church, but then they became communists. So Esau, the third part of Esau, or the worst part, is the Soviet Union, right? And what is fascinating is that the Soviet Union collapsed. Gorbachev closed it politically on December 25th, which we know is Christmas, which they celebrate as the birth 
right, of their person that they worship and so on. Uh, so that's astounding. So Gorbachev closed that country. He, he uh, nullified the whole Soviet Union, right, on in December 25th. That's when it happened. To indicate that this is the beginning of the fall of Asov, which is exactly what the Torah says. You see, <clears throat> now the second part of Asov I mentioned, of Christianity, Western civilization, is Europe. Because Europeans, right, the whole concept of Europe and Christianity is fraudulent. Because they have killed more people in the name of their religion, I think, than all wars combined. You see, Christianity is a conquering religion. In many ways, it's brutal the way they used to take over the world and subject people to torture and horrors. I mean, just take a look at the Crusades and so on, the pogroms and the Spanish Inquisitions, right? All fueled by Christianity as a religion and so on. I mean, they're known uh, for, for this and so on, you see? So Europe is the second part of Asaph, which is the fraudulent aspect where they preach love and peace and they kill everybody, especially for, for 2,000 years they've been killing people. And then you have, of course, America, which is the last part of Asaph, and that represents the taiva, the pleasure, and that's really what America is, and so on. Uh, therefore, what the Torah seems to be alluding to, or in a certain sense prophesying, right, is that when the last part of Esau collapses, right, and that is when Hadar HaMelech, the eighth king of Esau, or Edom, takes over, he will reverse the evil of the seven, which is exactly what Gorbachev did. He terminated the Soviet Union politically, right? So that ended, in many ways, the worst part of Esau. And this will happen this will precede the beginning of Mashiach ben Yosef. You see, it's fascinating. That's exactly what we see, right, in, um, uh, in this illusion in the Torah. This is all in the Torah uh, that was written, right, 3,300 years ago. You see. Anyway, I wanted to share that with you, that this is alluded to in the Torah in the end of Parshas Vayishlach, before the uh, whole story of Yosef. You see, <clears throat> now what is important to know about this in the story of Yosef is certain ideas, you know. Look, Yosef didn't have to be kidnapped. He could have gone down, you know, it could have been a, a whole different storyline. But the whole concept of Jews kidnapping another Jew, all right, because of his dreams. And then they sell him into slavery, right? And he winds up in the house of Fotifar. Then he has an entire, you know, test situation, temptation with Fotifar's wife and so on. And then he interprets the dream of Paroi, right? And all of a sudden he becomes Grand Vizier. He is incredible. It's, hard. it's like a, it's a classic almost, uh, you know, like a Hollywood movie. It has all the drama, the mystery, the intrigue of that type of uh, situation. Uh, how do we understand it within the hidden story of the Torah itself? 
you see. <clears throat> and therefore, one of the questions that you have to ask is, why does Yosef have to be kidnapped in that sense, you see? Why did Bonsham, clearly what the Bonsham wanted to do is conceal where Yosef was in the mind of Yaakov. Yaakov didn't know where Yosef was, as far as he was concerned, right? The brothers told him that Yosef died. He was killed by an animal, right? <clears throat> and they dipped his clothing, the coat, in blood, and they showed it to Yaakov, and they said, is this, do you recognize this? And he realized, or at least he thought that, yes, it's Yosef's coat, and it's in blood, so he must have been killed by an animal. Uh, the question is, why did the Russian want uh, Yaakov Ovino not to know where Yosef was, to think that he died, and therefore to grieve over Yosef for 22 years, because that's when he first came to Egypt to meet Yosef again. Uh, that is the question, you see. And the truth is that the idea of that is a very important idea. Something that actually I had mentioned last week. <clears throat> and that is that it says in the Torah, you know, and Ela told us Yaakov, Yosef, and so on, and by Yeshev Yaakov, and J- Jacob dwelt. And the, and the Chazal tell us that Yaakov was sort of like tired. He wanted to just live a peaceful life after this. I mean, he had a lot of problems, right? Uh, with the ace of his brother and Dina and Shechem, and now Yosef is gone and so on. He had a lot of problems, right? And he wanted to, I hate to use the word relax, uh, but he just wanted to take it easy. The very difficult thing to understand is, what do you mean? Sadiqim don't take it easy. Sadiqim don't go on vacation in that sense. Where, you know, it's one thing you want to, you know, for a week or two go to a hotel just to relax, refresh yourself, and get back into, you know, uh, doing mitzvahs and so on. But Yaakov wanted to do it for the rest of his life. Uh, so the Bershom says, what do you mean? You can't take off. You want to relax? That'll come in Ilam Hapa, the future world. This world is a world of work, right? Where you have to be involved in Tikkun can't relax and take a vacation which is really, you know, retire for the rest of your life. And that, what that did is it brought on uh, the whole problem of Yosef, the entire drama of Yosef. So our question is, right, which we have to ask, uh, how could Yaakov think this way? A tzaddik doesn't take off for the rest of his life and relax. Imagine walking over to a Hasidic Rebbe and the Rebbe says, well, I want to take off. I want to relax for the rest of my life. Right? I'm giving up the, the, the what's called the Rebista, the whole, you know, Hasidic court, uh, the, the court and so on, right? Uh, we don't hear that kind of things. Of course not. So why would Yaakov Avinu, who is much greater, right, obviously than Hasidic Rebbe's, how could he say this? That's a very difficult thing to understand. It's true that he had a lot of tsars, but still, right? Sadiqim don't say that because they know that this is a world of work. So what was really Yaakov alluding to? Well, the truth is very interesting. And I had mentioned some of the ideas last week, but to be again familiar, 
we know in a very short summary, right, that there are four of us. We know that, right? And the four of us is Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and Esav, that all four were patriarchs, and each one had a mission. The problem was, and I mentioned uh, Yaakov's mission was to bring down Kedusha, which is Yeshiva Holom, right? And the work of Esav as an Av, as a patriarch, was to go into the field, right? Ishsodeh, and to subdue evil and destroy the Sultan, to remain righteous, even in a world filled with Tumah. The problem was Esav succumbed to the temptations of the Sultan, and he became evil, which we know. So Yaakov took over the job of Esav, which we know also, right? In order to complete the job of the fourth of. But over, you see. And therefore he had to go into the field. He had to leave the base measure, so to speak, and go into the field, which is the house of Lovin, and remain a tzaddik in the house of Lovin. Because he took over the job of Esau. And that was Esau's job. And he saw the man of the field. Now we know this, you see. <clears throat> now then we know that Esau, you know, that Yaakov had an opportunity to bring Esau back, which I explained, you know, last week or whatever, that Esau could have done tshuva. But for whatever reason, Yaakov missed that indication that he could have done tshuva. And he didn't offer him Dina, which I had mentioned last week. And therefore, Esau returned the Darkoi to his evil ways. He spoke about that. However, right, there was a problem. That even though Yaakov took over the job of Esau, right, and he actually completed it, it seemed that way, but not really. Because there remained a major problem in the avoider of Yaakov vis-a-vis his taking over the job of Esau. What was that? Now we know that he was going to meet Esau, right? He was coming with 400 people, men, to kill him. And he was very worried. And it says, And Yaakov was tremendously afraid. Why? Uh, because what he was afraid of isn't the prowess of Esau. No. He was afraid of the spiritual me, uh, superiority of Esau in the area of Kibbutov, honoring your father and mother. Because Esau remained home, right? And he honored his father and mother and he served him. Yaakov, however, didn't because he was in the house of Lovin. So what was is we don't know exactly how but therefore, he, was, he den- was denied, in a certain sense, the opportunity, or maybe he never visited him. We don't really know. That Yaakov was deficient in the midst of Kibbut of vis-a-vis Esav. Esav had a much greater merit than Yaakov in that area. But that's very bad. Because Yaakov Avinu's job is to do what? It's to take over the job of Esav, right? And therefore to establish incredible superiority over Esau. Instead, Esau now has a tremendous superiority over Yaakov, that he honored his father, right, much greater than Yaakov Avinu. In fact, Chazal tells us 
that Esau was the greatest person who ever lived in terms of honoring his father and mother. Certainly his father, you see. So the problem was that even though Yaakov is now coming to meet Esau, and he, comp- not that he, and he completed the job of Esau, right, by entering into the field of Tumor and remaining righteous and tremendously subduing the Sodom, which, by the way, is the angel that he fought with before he's meeting Esau, even though he did that, but he left Esau with a tremendous credit of keeping of over him. And that flaw would be very difficult for Jews to overcome. That would always enable Esau to be victorious in judgment between him and Yaakov. Because he could always say, they don't come to my kibbutz of at all. Right? So I should win this court case in heaven. Uh, and what the Bansham knew, of course, is that that can't be. He cannot leave Esau with that type of superior merit over Yaakov. And Yaakov himself was tremendously afraid that maybe he would win in court and the court would decide that he can kill Yaakov or seriously injure him. And that's why Yaakov was afraid. And actually the Targum says that. Why was Yaakov afraid? So he says, because honoring your father. That's why, you see. Uh, see, here was the problem. Yaakov had done tremendous in completing the job of Esau. The problem was is that since he was not home, whatever, Esau had this incredible superior merit over Yaakov that would always be a thorn in the side, not only of Yaakov, but in all the Jewish descendants. Because it would give Esau's descendants a superiority over the children of Yaakov, which is very bad, you see. Once we understand all of this, we now understand something very important, which is Vayoshev, or Vayeshev, and Esau wanted, uh, and, excuse me, and Yaakov wanted to retire. What does that mean? Of course he didn't want to retire. Tzadikim don't retire. But what he wanted to do is in his mind, he had completed the job of Esau. So he wanted to retire from the job of Esau and go back to his own job of Kedusha, of bringing down holiness. But of course he had to continue the Avodah itself. Oh, you see, that's what he was thinking. He wanted to retire from the job of Esau, right? Which is the Kfiyah uh, to subdue evil by remaining righteous. And he was right, you see. Especially since the job of Esau would now be given, or half of it would be given to Yosef, which I mentioned, you see. But in any case, that's what he wanted to do, is to end the job of taking over the job of Esau and going back to his own job in Avodah and worshipping God with mitzvahs and so on in terms of his pastor's kedusha to bring down holiness, to remain in the tent. That's what he wanted to do because he thought that he completed the job of Esau. What else is there to do? You see. And as we will see, for the part that he did not complete, because like once said, that no man can do two jobs of two patriarchs. So Yaakov only did half, but he completed his half. 
And the other half he would give out to Yosef to finish the job of Esau. But he certainly completed his half, you see. That's what he wanted. But the Rabbani Shalom said, no, because you left Esau with a tremendous merit over you and your descendants. You need, repair, you need to repair that. You see, how did he repair that? Because the Rabbani Shalom decided that Yosef, who does take over the job of half job of Esau, because Yosef now becomes a Chatziov, he becomes a half a patriarch, he has to go into what's called the Klippa. He has to go into the evil field. Yosef has to go and become the Ishsodeh, the man of the field. That's why Yosef had to go to Egypt, to remain a Tzaddik in the Tumor of Egypt. Same thing as Yaakov did by Lovan, you see. But the main idea is that the Bansham could have made it, right, where Yosef went to Egypt, remained, because let's say he was offered for whatever historical reason some type of um, become the Grand Vizier. I mean, it doesn't take much for the Bansham to arrange that. It takes nothing at all. And Yaakov would have known that Yosef was down in Egypt and he was doing a fabulous job. But the Bansham said, no, you need a kapora you need a atonement because Esau has a much greater merit in the othering father, which is a terrible detriment to the Jewish people. Therefore, what the Bosham is incredible. He had Yosef in Egypt doing the job of Esau without Yaakov knowing it because Yaakov thought Yosef was dead, destroyed or killed by an animal. And that was for 22 years. So for the 22 years that he did not serve his father, he was, de- he was denied the service of Yosef. You see, that was the sacrifice that he had to do, which is interesting. Uh, you see what the Bershom does? Not only does he have to give the opportunities of Israel to do the Tikkun, but he has to make sure that they're protected. And Esau had this tremendous advantage over Yaakov and his descendants, right? Uh, that he honored his father. And Yaakov didn't do anywhere near what, Yosef, what, what Esau did. So in order to protect the Jewish people, right, from the Kitrugim, the prosecutions of Edom or Esau, or the Sultan, who was the angel of Esau, all right, he had to make sure Yaakov had a kapora. So what he did is he made the story, he caused Yosef's uh, travel to Egypt to be concealed from Yaakov, right? And as a result, the pain or the grief that Yaakov had, that Yosef did not ha- was not there, and therefore Yosef was denied serving his father for 22 years, was sufficient to remove, right, the, um, the uh, disadvantage that Yaakov had. In fact, what's interesting, we see that when Yaakov was apprised of the fact that Yosef was alive, it says, good, let me go to Egypt before I die to see Yosef. You see, <clears throat> so it says that before he left to go to Egypt, he sacrificed on, the, on an altar, right? It said he sacrificed Lelokei Oviv to the God of his father. Why didn't you say to the God of Avraham Avinu, his grandfather? Because what he realized is the reason why God concealed 
the, the fate of Yosef from him was to allow him to have a kapora from the fact that he did not serve his father for 22 years. So he immediately made up for that by offering a sacrifice to God. God in terms of what? God in terms of that this is God of his father Yitzchak. And that in some way would invoke a tremendous merit for Yitzchak, you see. <clears throat> and that we understand. And we now understand in this week's parasha, in Vayechi. You see, what do you mean? Because it says, Vayechi Yaakov. <clears throat> and Yaakov lived, right? We know in the land of Egypt for 17 years. It uses the word Vayechi. Well, it really should have, and then he died, and so on. Which is what the parasha talks about. But what it really should have said is Vayeshev Yaakov. And Yaakov dwelt in Egypt, right, for 17 years, right? What do you mean Vayechi Yaakov and Yaakov lived? And the answer is that once Yaakov realized that God afforded him, even though it was terrible grief, a kapora for the kibbutz of Aim that he did not do it to his father, therefore he realized that he now completed totally the job of Esau which it took over when Esav became a Russia. So that was the tikkun that he did. Uh, you see? And therefore he lived. Why? Because he completed something which was incredibly difficult to go into what's called the Tumor, right? And survive and remain righteous. And therefore it doesn't say that he dwelt in Egypt. He lived in Egypt with the idea that he successfully did what? that he successfully did the tikkun of Esau's job. Oh, you see, he completed, truly completed the job of Esau because now Esau doesn't even have any merit of superiority over the fact that he was greater in Kibbut over Aim because what God gave Yaakov Avinu is a tremendous concept, is a tremendous kapora. So now Esau does not have that as a claim against Yaakov. He does have it, however, as a merit for himself and for his descendants. <clears throat> and who knows if that's not basically one of the ideas of why the descendants of Esau rule the entire world. You see? Because that's what it is. When a person observes the mitzvah of Kibbut of, they submit to the authority the beliefs, the tradition of their father, their parents, father and mother. You see, so the reward of that, among other things, is that since you submitted to the authority, right, of your parents, which is the mitzvah of keep it over aim, right, therefore you will be an authority over others. You see, that's the measure for measure. You who admit to the authority, and thereby honor your father and mother, right, for that authority, you therefore will be rewarded that you yourself will become an authority over others. So who knows if the fact that Esau did tremendous kibbutz of, right, and that's what gave Rome the tremendous merit to rule the entire world because of the merit of Esau as regards kibbutz of, honoring your father and mother. It's interesting. 
Because even the fact that Rome ruled, right, for so many hundreds of years, I mean, Rome became a republic in 525, right, BCE. That's a long time. That's when they first became a republic, 525 BCE. And they collapsed basically around 400 CE. Working here at almost 900 years of existence. Who knows if that the real reason for that is because Asaph was so great in Kibbut of, you see. And that's why Rome ruled the world for a thousand years. However, the Rosham had to take that merit at least away from Asaph in terms of him being tremendously superior to Yaakov. In fact, we see how superior it was that Yaakov was afraid when he's about to meet Asaph that Asaph may have the merit to actually harm him or kill him. We can imagine. Uh, so look what the Rabban Shem did. See? To save Yaakov and his descendants, he had to make sure that Yaakov would complete the entire job. Even if it meant that he would have to take Yosef, right, and hide the fact that Yosef was still alive. But Yaakov wouldn't know that. Imagine he loved Yosef, as the Torah says, more than, it's hard to say, but more than the other uh, children or whatever. But certainly, uh, his grief was enormous. In fact, he never really got over the grief of the death of Yosef. We see from the Torah that. So that all was a kapora for Yaakov Avino. So one of the things we can learn from this is how God takes care of the Jewish people. That he's very careful he knows, you know, what the, the results will be, what the consequences are, if evil people, Rishoyim, like Esav, actually have a, a complaint, right, where they say, well, I'm superior to you in spirituality. That's very dangerous, you see, because in the end, that's the critical factor, spirituality. Not if you have more weapons or if you train better, all of this is irrelevant. It's, what is your merit in front of me, God says. Problem is, like I said, Esau had tremendous merit, you see. And therefore, he had to protect Yaakov and all his descendants. So, let's hope. So this really begins to shape up the story of Yaakov and Esau. Why, in many ways, this had to take place in order for Yaakov to complete, really complete, his part in the job of Esav, uh, uh, the job of Esav himself. Uh, however, there are many other ideas which are very difficult, which I will explain, hopefully next week. Any questions? Okay. I have a question. Okay. So, this is really interesting about um, the merits. Did, remember once, Rabbi, you said that America has a lot of merits for Mother's Day yes. and Father's Day? Right. Are those, but you said that one time you were saying something like America could be punished as a country, but did the merits go to ASAV or to the country? Well, remember, America, in many ways, is a descendant. One of the, you know, the, uh, 
are descendants of Esau in that sense, you know, it's certainly the philosophy of America. And a lot of it has to do with what America does. Because America does a tremendous amount of chesed, tremendous acts of kindness, you see. So they have tremendous spiritual claims, you see. So that's certainly true. Right, so then America still has merits to stand, maybe. Oh, yeah. Sure they do. Yeah, America has hundreds of years of merits. Not only that, one of the greatest merits of America is Torah is learned in America. Freedom. People, Jews can learn Torah in America, which is incredible. It's not just the chesed, but a great deal of the Torah that the Jews learn in America, right, freedom of religion, is a tremendous merit to America. You see. So God takes all of that into account. Also, when, when you were talking about when Yosef knew that he did the tikkun of Esav, do we have you a Yaakov. way? You mean Yaakov. Yosef completed it, right? He completed the... Um, yeah, he, yeah he, has, he had the second part. He completed right. the tikkun. Right. Right. But, but he knew, and we don't... Like, do we have a way to know if we've completed a a tikkun? Do we have a way? Maybe. Yeah, maybe God in some way uh, gives that message to a person, but he has to be able to read it. But God will always make sure that you complete your tikkun because he wants to give you ilam haba, which means you have to finish your job. Even and if, if you don't finish, you come back. back. What was that? Yeah. I was going to say, even if that means coming back. Right, exactly. Sure. So we see that the whole story in many ways is not, you know, uh, what do you call it, arbitrary. Everything is there for a reason in order to help the Jews do the tikkun. You see, very important story in terms of how the, the creation runs. You know, people don't realize how pivotal the story of Yaakov and Esav is and how much it, uh, it, how much it uh, influences world history. You know, I mean, just take a look at, the, like I said, Gorbachev, what the Torah says about that. Because the they're, they're, they're Soviet Union is really from Esav, you know. So maybe when you said Adam, Adam um, Suromi, it became Christianity? Yes, Rome became Christian. So do you think, because the, the, queen, the queen passed away and now the Pope passed away, do you think that in yes, any that way could. that's connected to something happening? Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, he was 95 years old. Benedict died, which is, uh, you know, that I mean, that's... Look, the Pope is the uh, king of Christianity. He's the prince of, of whatever you call that, of Christianity, yeah. And, uh, you know, he rules instead of, uh, you know, their, their person. But he was a retired Pope. He was retired, though. He was retired, yeah. I think because of a scandal. Yeah. Because he was, he was forced to retire, right. Yeah. 
child. He was still living in the Vatican. Yeah, you know. So he was like pseudo. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, a mission of Canaan. That's where they put their old pots to, uh, okay. you know, to... Uh, old age home. Old age home, right. Yeah. You're not talking loud enough. Can you, can you go what? back a little bit? In the, in the very beginning, you were talking about a Saravatevit. Right. In such a way, like, it sounds like it's the most... I've heard it before where people say, well, it's just, it's like a little fast, and then that's why no. we don't have to start the fast. I, I, at that's night. why I brought we can down. start it tomorrow. Right. That's why. No, no, no. So all fast days are, are not the whole day except Tishabov. But it's a very significant but, fast, like I said. But I don't think that it's really talked about as being as significant as you just, you just made it. <coughs> okay. You know, it sounds like this is this is really something special. What? We should really be crying tomorrow. Yeah, and, because and that's now. when the decree, that's when the decree was issued by the court, the heavenly tribunal, to destroy the temple. Yeah, that's terrible. Right. That's so right now day. they're basically adjudicating, right, to see if right if we're, exactly. If we have that's the merit, right? That's why we have to. We have to hope that finally they're going to say, "Okay, we're going to build the base and make this." Because if they do say that, it's going to happen this year. Because we know it's then the 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 judgment isn't if it's when. But wouldn't wouldn't Mashiach Ben Yosef be in the picture already before yes. they they make that right. decree? Right, well, that means this year, well, we don't know. I mean, he would know. But it, in other words, what I'm saying is that it's not a matter of if they will give the decree. They, we know they will eventually give the decree that the Beis HaMikdash has to be built because it's part of his entry as Mashiach. The question is when. So what we're hoping is that tomorrow, which is a Serbatavis in the daytime, that will be the decree, right, to build the Beis HaMikdash which is automatically the decree that it will happen this year, which is also automatically the decree that we will now prepare Sheikh bin Yosef, right? When you say it's his entry into the, for, to be the Mashiach, what do you mean by that? Because in what, in what level of form of Mashiach that we would see it with our eyes, meaning... Doesn't he have to have somewhat of a popularity before the Beit HaMikdash would come even down? Yes. And if, don't they say that it comes down on Tisha B'Av? So you're saying... Well, like I say, it's not... What we need is the decree. And that can happen tomorrow. When it comes down is the actual fulfillment of that decree. But the real concept is the decree itself. You see? Because then it happens. Without that decree, it doesn't happen. You see, so what we're hoping is tomorrow is the decree that the Beis Hamikdash will be built this year, and the Mashiach Ben Yosef will be freed from his klipa, his prison, or the suffering that he goes through, right, in order to allow the Jewish people to be redeemed. The end of the exile. That's what we're Amen. hoping. So for me. Amen. So for me, what? 
Oh, I just want to understand it correctly. So, in in order for the Mashiach, for him to start the actual process, we need the decree of the Beit HaMikdash to be rebuilt first? <coughs> well, it could be together. Uh, uh, but, but it, certainly doesn't, it doesn't need to be... Because uh, I always thought that it was Mashiach and Yosef first, and then the decree for it to be rebuilt. No, no, because once you release the Mashiach and Yosef, from his difficulties and his sufferings, that automatically means that the Beis Hamikdash will be built, because the Beis Hamikdash has to be built before Mashiach ben David. Right. So it's automatically in the same decree. What basically the decree is that the exile must end, will end this year. Okay. That's basically what it must mean. So if the exile ends, it implies two things: one is that the Mashiach ben Yosef will be released from his suffering. And number two, that the Beis Hamikdash must be built. Because that has to happen before Mashiach ben David comes. And when, let's say the decree is issued, God willing, it has to happen this year in order for it to come into fruition? Or it could yes. happen next? It has to be this year. I believe it has to be this year, right? <clears throat> right. And I believe that's why we're seeing... What? Uh, I can't hear you. What? I want to know, is it Abraham Avinu's yard site tomorrow? Um, I don't know. I think it was, it was a few days ago. It was a few days ago? I think it was Friday. Okay, talk louder, Rachel. Number two, if you can't hear me. Number two, about that Gorbachev is Hadar... So now we got rid of all the bad leaders. Is now the new one, the good one, coming out? Like, I'm, I'm a little lost with that story. <clears throat> well, the main idea in that is that before Mashiach ben Yosef comes, these events must take place, where the Soviet Union must collapse. Because the Soviet Union is, a, is the worst aspect of Esau, you see. And what is fascinating is, is that the eight kings of Edom is represented by the Soviet Union, who had eight presidents. And the incredible thing is that Gorbachev is the gematria of Hadar HaMelech. You see. I can't hear you. What? Biden yes. Over. Yes. Yeah. Because we are now witnessing a battle between the good part of Asaph, which is Trump, and the bad part of Asaph, which is the Democratic Party. Biden is merely a member of the Democratic Party. But the real evil of Asaph are the progressives, the Democratic Party, the liberals. They are destroying the world. And hopefully, tomorrow, when the new Congress takes over, especially the House, the Republicans, they will go after all of them. And it's very possible they may destroy Biden. Because if they find that he took money from China for, as bribes, that's treason, not merely impeachment. It's a, it's a, it's a charge of treason. 
So it should be very interesting to see what God does to Biden. So I mean, what Biden is doing <laughs> is beyond belief. The horror of Biden is beyond belief. And the incredible thing is nobody says anything. <clears throat> Thousands of people die every day because of that man. With fentanyl coming in over the border and the amount of misery that he has caused America is beyond belief. I, I, I saw a statistic that 70% of America now regard themselves as poor. They can't make ends meet. You know? And the one who caused all this is Biden. Him and the, and the Democrats. You think tomorrow is, uh, there's a very big, not coincidence, but a very big co- connection between Asara Beteve and January 3rd, that they both, I mean, that it both falls on the same time when the shift in power? Yes, I think that's really, in many ways, uh, well, I, it looks coincidental, but it's not. There's a tremendous, like I say, shift in power, right, on Asara Betevis, which is hopefully the decree of the shift of power, right? <clears throat> so tomorrow could be incredibly significant. Incredibly significant. You know. If I, you were in the middle of a sentence, and and then I think. Um, what sentence was I? In you were, you were in the middle of talking about about you know getting having the decree for the Beit HaMikdash. And then you said, that I believe it's why we are seeing. I believe that we are seeing. Oh, maybe I would want to say that. Uh, that's why there are two very good things that are turning around. One is that, like I said, Israel now has no air of Rav in the government. None, except Netanyahu, who's heir of Rav, but he's heir of Rav light. He's a much milder form of the heir of Rav. But basically, everybody else in the coalition is not the heir of Rav. It's on the contrary. It's a religious right. That's the first thing. So this never happened before in Israeli history, uh, you know, especially with a guy, Ben Gavir. Um... Ben Gavir could be somebody that we don't even begin to think about who he is. I suspect you never know. He may, be, he may become prime minister. You know? Because the Rebbeinshem needs somebody between now and the Mashiach Ben Yosef to be over Israel. He needs a middleman. But the, the middleman has to be a prime minister that is religious. And it's very possible, uh, even though people will not probably agree, but that's because they don't really understand. You never know. It could be Ben Gavir. Because it has nothing to do with votes. It's all about God. And Ben Gavir can be a candidate to become prime minister. And if he does become prime minister, then I believe after him is Mashiach Ben Yosef. You see? Does he have to rule his full term? <laughs> Who? 
Ben Gvir? Yeah, meaning you say no. Uh, no, it, it's possible that if he ever becomes prime minister, it could very well be. It's not up to the votes; it's up to God. He would be the perfect candidate to be what's called the middle, the what you call the interlude between the heir of Rav and the Mashiach Ben Yosef. When do they pick their prime minister? Well, the elections won't be for another four years. But look, the Bunshim has his ways. You know, <clears throat> he has his ways of making anybody he wants to be prime minister, believe me. Right. So, yeah. now, I have a question. If the, if the decree is reversed tomorrow, and yes. we do get to be able to rebuild the Beit HaMikdash, God willing, this year, are we going to... How do we know it will be reversed? By looking in the news? By looking what's happening in the world? Like, how do we know? Well, we'll know because it happened. Well, no, because the base of Migdash all of a sudden is being built or is coming down from heaven. And there will be an individual who will become very popular. Mashiach ben Yosef. Once he's released from his so-called prison, then that's it. He will be, become very well known and he will have incredible abilities, you know, to change the world. That's what the Bansham says. So it would still take time, bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned the Zohar many times, that 210 years before the end, the end is 2240, the English year 2240, 210 years is what? Is 2030. Well, guess what? We just turned 23. We have seven years. We have seven years before Tchirsa Mesem, so Mashiach ben Yosef, the Beis HaMikdash, and Mashiach ben David all have to come in seven years. So if tomorrow it's decreed in Shemaim, okay, let's build the Beis HaMikdash, you think that we're going to be redeemed this Passover? It could be. It could be that something significant will happen Purim, right, and, and Pesach. Look, this year is going to become a very, this year is going to be a very interesting year because of these two major events, the government of Israel and the, uh, and the, uh, the government of the United States. <clears throat> you see, those Why are major Purim? events. Yeah, what? Why Purim? I'm curious. I can't hear you, what? Why, Why Purim? Why, why, would, why would we see something on Purim? Well, because Purim is the destruction of Amalek. So that's the end of the Golas. That's what it signifies. You see. So Purim is a very appropriate time. And Ado, anyway, is the Mazal of Yosef. Right. So it's an appropriate time, very appropriate time. You know? Do you know when the Iraqi war ended? I mean, uh, with, uh, with Saddam Hussein? Do you know when the war ended? On Purim. I'll never forget that. It end- the truce was declared on Purim. On the day of Purim itself. You know, so there's no question that it's a very propitious time for different events to happen. 
you see. Oh. Okay. So have look, I let's, the, let's um, see. the Kavana that we should have? Or should we do the Tehillim 79 and 137? Yeah, sure. Should we do it tonight? We should we should start them tonight. Is well, there anything uh, else? You can do it tonight because it's that sort of now. Or you can do it tomorrow morning. What do you say? You say uh, Perek 7, E, and 9, and Perek 130? 79 and 137. 137. Yeah. The Tikkun Leah. Oh, got it. Okay, very nice. Is it better to say it when we're fasting? Uh, yeah. Yeah, because that's the time that you do, you're doing tshuva, right? Okay. It's going to be an exciting year. So I told you a lot of stuff. And you, you now see how the Rosh takes very good care of Klai Yisrael. Amen.